it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Very pleased to have you all here between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday and around the clock for free on our podcast as well, GuyBensonShow.com for all of it. It's all right there. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Both of those platforms also available for me personally if you want to follow me there, at Guy P. Benson. So you've got multiple options on social media. Lineup today is as follows. One guest per hour, Mark Thiessen later on this hour, Mary O'Grady of the Wall Street Journal next hour talking about her piece on the Biden administration's just indefensible energy policies vis-a-vis Iran and a few other examples. Venezuela, of course, we'll get to that. And then Molly Hemingway will be here in our final hour kicking off our happy hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. So a lot to get to On the program yesterday, we talked a fair amount about what's happening in China, the uprising, the protests, and we started to see a shift where the Chinese authorities were doing a couple things. First of all, cracking down. And I will get to the crackdown and some of the details here in just a moment. Very disturbing, but also softening some of their language, softening some of their policies as well of the zero covid lockdown insanity which is inhumane, it's anti-scientific, it's deadly, as a matter of fact. And they seem to be backing away a little bit from it, although you wonder how much of that is window dressing for domestic and even foreign consumption, given how much criticism they've come under. Do they mean it? Are they going to stick with some of the loosening, or is this just kind of like a PR Band-Aid? I guess time will tell. But in the meantime... They are once again exhibiting zero tolerance for dissent, which is what authoritarian regimes do. In this case, a communist regime that does not allow its citizenry to say anything against the ruling government, the Chinese Communist Party. And there's a few different angles to come at this from. I'll start with this, a Wall Street Journal story that I wanted to get to yesterday. Didn't have time, but I want you to hear it. This is how, in this extremely Orwellian way, the Chinese Communist Party is suppressing and preventing additional demonstrations and protests. Not just in Hong Kong anymore. Right? They've got those protests on democracy. They've got, of course, their active genocide. Let's not forget about that in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs. These are protests within mainland China among Chinese who are just tired of the policies, which are crazy and just completely unsustainable and are crushing people, which is why finally it just sort of boiled over 
but to make sure there's not too much free speech or dissent happening. Listen to this from the Wall Street Journal. And by the way, I hope, because this story is dateline Beijing, I hope these Wall Street Journal reporters are going to be safe. Because we told you earlier in the week about how a BBC Western journalist was roughed up, assaulted, and arrested for his own good, the Chinese government said, because he was telling the truth about what was happening inside that country. So here's the journal piece. Police fanned out across China's big cities Tuesday in an effort to prevent fresh protests as security services harnessed the country's pervasive surveillance system to hunt down participants in mass demonstrations calling for an end to strict COVID curbs and criticizing national leaders. Meanwhile, China's central public health authorities urged local governments to avoid unnecessary and lengthy lockdowns. So that's sort of like the fig leaf that they're using here, something of an olive branch, at least for show. You get deeper into the story, and it's just, I don't know what to call this other than sinister and creepy. Police appear to be using messaging apps, social media, and cell phone data to track down those who are organizing and participating in protests. A university student in Beijing, who had participated in Sunday's protests in the city, said his school had been contacted by police. The school told him police had used mobile phone data to track his movements to the vicinity of the protests. He was asked to write a declaration explaining why he was present in the area at that time. So disturbing. Under Chairman Xi, China has expanded its ability to track the movements and activities of its citizens. While this didn't stop the protests from breaking out, China's security apparatus has begun to lean on it to prevent them from spreading. Besides hundreds of millions of cameras, some equipped with facial recognition software that line city streets, the police can also access detailed mobile phone and social media data that shows people's locations at any given time. Now listen to this. The government has enhanced these capabilities over the past two years as part of contact tracing efforts to control the spread of the virus. Quote, these technologies, which were supposed to facilitate anti-COVID efforts, have turned into shackles being put on us, said one citizen of China, an activist. So obviously there's no comparison between the United States government and the Chinese regime. Obviously authoritarian governments are going to do authoritarian things. But I understand why a lot of Americans are deeply suspicious of the government creating systems like this, databases. They say, oh, it's for our own good, it's for our own safety. And then at least when things get out of control, and again, I'm not making any moral equivalence, but taken to its extreme, which it has been by communist China, the contact tracing to combat COVID is now being weaponized against the people in China who are protesting against the COVID lockdowns of the government. And just the extent of the Orwellian, deeply disturbing surveillance state and these social credit scores, the system that the CCP is implementing, it just gets deeper and deeper and more upsetting and harder for the people to ever really register discontent with the people in charge.
It is a really, really upsetting thing to read. So it's a combination of harsh crackdown, using this data and this information, abusing it, weaponizing it, and then also at least pretending that they're going to soften and back off a little bit on some of the policies. Meanwhile, there are questions here at home about whether or not, in this case, one particular U.S. company, technology company, has helped the Chinese government do exactly this. Tucker Carlson last night was asking questions about it, building a case against Apple. We played you sound bites from Governor DeSantis, who was also on Tucker's show last night talking about this, who was calling out the Chinese, calling out Apple. Apple is apparently, allegedly, rattling the saber against Twitter here in the United States because lefties are mad at Elon Musk and Twitter. So they might be trying to use some of their corporate power to bully Twitter into some things while allegedly aiding and abetting the monstrous bullies, the genocidal, suppressive bullies in communist China, making it easier for them to quell any sort of demonstrations in that country because of a change that they have made inside China to the use capabilities of Apple products. Here was Tucker laying some of it out last night in Cut One. Earlier this month, Apple did the bidding of the Chinese government to crush domestic protests against the Communist Party there. Apple did this by disabling its permanent airdrop feature in China, and so far only in China. That's the only country in which it's disabled. So why did Apple disable that feature in China? Well, because that feature, permanent airdrop, allows iPhone users to communicate directly with one another without using the internet or cellular networks, both of which, in a totalitarian state like China, are controlled by the government. And that means that without permanent airdrop, it's effectively impossible for freedom-minded citizens to organize with one another. They're powerless. In other words, and again, this is not an overstatement, Apple is now an active collaborator with China's murderous police state. I mean, that's a very tough line from Tucker. Apple's pushing back. They need to respond to this. They need to be asked very tough questions about this, especially when you juxtapose it with their apparent political games that they're playing about Twitter here in the United States. Put them side by side. It's pretty hard to reconcile in any way that is satisfactory or reasonable. And in fact, the CEO of Apple is here in town in Washington, D.C. today, meeting and flying in to meet with Republican lawmakers about a number of these issues. And I hope he gets grilled behind closed doors and ultimately in front of the cameras under oath by people who know what they're doing, what they're talking about, who won't just blather on with political talking points that are an inch deep, people who actually know these issues, perhaps with experience in the industry. In fact, I want to talk more about this later with Molly Hemingway. I know she's pretty fired up on this. So that is the current state of play in China. The allegations here about Apple, which goes into this ongoing conversation that we're having in debate about free expression, big tech, government intervention and regulation and oversight. I mean, there's just a lot of different things at play here in a story that I think is fascinating and obviously on some gut level really upsetting. When you see what's happening over there and to some extent, some of the elements, what's happening over here. 
where you see where it's taken all the way to an extreme in an authoritarian country run by communists, and you see some of the impulses here in the United States in a free country from people who want more and more and more control with an awful lot of an awful lot, I should say, of consolidated power to potentially be able to do that. And I think part of the job of the government and the citizenry here is to demand that some of those impulses are kept in check. As I said, more on this to come. For now, though, we will take a break. When we come back, some sad news out of the music world, the rock and roll world. We will bring you that news with a tribute coming up right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. If you're listening on the broadcast, you are listening now to probably my favorite song by Fleetwood Mac, Little Lies. When I first had a radio show just out of college, a weekend show in Chicago, it was during the 08 presidential election, and it was just, you know, big, open, crazy primary on both sides. And the Democrats, of course, had a very competitive primary, Obama, Hillary, John Edwards. And whenever we would do a Hillary Clinton campaign update, we would play Little Lies by Fleetwood Mac, which seemed fitting. And the lead vocals, female lead vocals on that song, provided, of course, by Christine McVie. And the breaking news that I referenced right before the break is that Christine McVie has passed away. Her family and the band have revealed at the age of 79. Apparently, she came down with an illness, and it all happened rather quickly. She died surrounded by her family in hospital. As I mentioned, she was 79 and just an integral part of that band. Fleetwood Mac is an iconic American and British band, sort of this cross-Atlantic, transatlantic band with so many hits. I was trying to think. I went to go see them sort of last minute. Adam and I went with my cousin, Chris, who right before the concert, maybe day of, day before, said, hey, I'm going to go see Fleetwood Mac. They were playing at the hockey arena here in D.C. Do you guys want to come? And I just texted my cousin. When was that? I knew it was before COVID. It was right around my birthday, early March 2019. March 5th, 2019, they were here in D.C. We bought some cheap-ish tickets, not great seats, and went. It's like, you know what? Why not? I knew a couple of their songs, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, Little Lies. And I was not prepared to know as many of the songs as I did. So many hits. So many big hits. They put on a hell of a show. Tom Petty had recently passed away. His lead guitarist had joined Fleetwood Mac at one point during the encore. One of my coolest concert memories ever. They opened the encore with all the lights down with Free Fallen by Tom Petty, sung by Stevie Nicks, like chills. But Christine McVie had her fingerprints and her voice all over so many of their big hits. Little Lies, of course. How about this one? Everywhere? 
I got to tell you, so often when we're hanging around the house or cooking or having people over, like almost a default setting is, oh, put on Fleetwood Mac radio on Spotify and you'll mix in some Billy Joel and some other artists of that era. And it's just great music. That's a really good song everywhere. And then at this concert I went to in 2019, a song that McVie co-wrote, I had never heard before, Hold Me. If you're a big fan of Fleetwood Mac, you're probably rolling your eyes. How do you never heard of that song? I had never heard it. They played it in concert. It was stuck in my head for days. She took the lead on it on keyboards. Here's the chorus. I'm just so glad and thankful that I was able to go see them, mostly still together. They've had a lot of tumultuous bumps in the road and famously like they were all dating each other and then sleeping with each other and cheating on each other and being very angry with each other, but then writing fantastic music inspired by all the dysfunction and just blowing through money like crazy people. These are like rock stars, right? This is, I guess, what they do. They've probably mellowed, you would think, as they've aged a little bit. But it was a real great opportunity to go see them in concert. I'm so glad that I did it. Christine McVie was someone that I hadn't heard of until I was at that concert and really liked everything that she was doing. I was just really taken by her and started focusing, especially on some of the songs that she sang or wrote. This reminds me, by the way, that my favorite of all time, the GOAT in my mind, Billy Joel, he just announced he and Stevie Nicks, a bandmate of Christine McVie's, of course, very famous, the the most famous person in Fleetwood Mac, Billy Joel and Stevie Nicks are going to go on tour. Limited number of dates so far. I hope they expand the tour. I got to go see that. But just some sad news. Christine McVie, dead at the age of 79. This just broke minutes ago. And Fleetwood Mac... I'm enough of a fan that I wanted to talk about it, play some of their music, pay tribute to, I would say, a very underrated member of the band. A legend in a legendary band is now gone. So rest in peace to her, thoughts and prayers to her family and her bandmates. Some fantastic musical memories. Thank you for that, Christine. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. And on the broadcast, another bumper song by Fleetwood Mac, as we reported in the last segment. Christine McVie dying at the age of 79 today. A key part of that band. And they were just awesome. I was a huge fan of hers in particular. And we paid tribute in the last segment. A couple snippets of songs. If you missed that, you can go catch it on that free podcast that I just mentioned at the end of the show. Joining us now is Mark Thiessen, columnist at the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, AEI fellow, and former speechwriter to President George W. Bush. 
Mark, it is great to have you here. I don't know if you're a Fleetwood Mac fan at all, but fans are mourning the loss of Christine McVie. That's just terrible. Oh my gosh! I just let you know. I one of my one of my hobbies that my wife and I have is we go to see seventies and eighties bands, and we're trying to see all of them before they die. And, we, and we've missed a few here and there, but but uh, boy, I, w- I would have loved to see Fleetwood Mac before before she passed away. Well, do yourself a favor and go see them even without her because it's a really cool experience. But it won't be quite the same without her, Mark. And I just wanted to. Put that out there and and let people know. Obviously, I'm a fan, not a super fan by any stretch, but I was sad to hear that news. Mark, before we get into your latest column at The Washington Post, sort of breaking down and looking back and reflecting on the midterm elections, uh, I have a very important question to ask you, which is, did by any chance you happen to catch the New York Rangers-New Jersey Devils game the other night? You SOB. (laughs) Yes, I saw it. Yes. I saw Your okay. Devils are doing I, great. Congratulations. Very happy for you. Uh, I was disgusted hearing uh, the, uh, the the people, the, the Devils fans taunting Igor in, in Madison Square Garden. Uh, just, uh, yeah. We've we no, got to get our act together. It's, and hearing uh, some Let's Go Devils chants inside the garden is pretty fun. And I won't get into the whole, you know, are you guys regretting the whole Jack Hughes decision? Uh, and the famous cheering when the Devils picked Hughes instead of your guy. We can, of course, uh, talk about that perhaps later on in the season. But it's fun, at least for the Devils, to not be terrible for the first time in a long time. Playing really well. Not sure they can sustain this clip. But for now, it's been fun, and we'll see how things play out. It's still so early on. But so far, so good. And uh, hopefully, Mark, I'll have many other opportunities to troll you as the season progresses here, as the rivalry plays out. Okay. Let's talk about the election. Your Washington Post headline and your column is the voters have spoken. Here's how they answered my top 10 election questions, which I think is a very interesting way to sort of frame this thing. There were a number of things that you were wondering about leading into the election. Now we have the verdict from the American people. And I'm not sure if we have time to get into all 10 of them. But why don't we highlight a couple of them? What do you think were some of the most important questions that you had ahead of time? And what are the answers now? So one of the most important questions was, uh, would Republicans pay a price for the Dobbs decision uh, at the polls? And the answer is mixed. Uh, There were, uh, I believe, six governors uh, who were on the ballot, Republican governors, who signed abortion restrictions that took effect after the Dobbs decision, and every single one of them was reelected, uh, but most of them by very large margins. Uh, so the the Republicans who actually implemented restrictions on abortions in the way of Dobbs didn't pay a price. However, I think it, one of the things that you and I saw the Fox Vote News voter analysis on election night, um, it showed that surprisingly. Uh, abortion was considered was ranked the second most important issue in the country, way behind the economy. But it was 10 percent. The economy was 43 percent. Abortion was 10 percent. Crime was 8 percent. Uh, immigration was 9 percent. Very close to those. But it was there. And I think in a number of key race in tight races, 
I don't think abortion would have been enough to win an election for somebody. But if you were in a tight race, and particularly with some of these extreme candidates where there were races that were much closer than they should have been, um, you know, I think it might have made a difference and won and won the Democrats some seats and helped them keep the keep the Senate. So it's, it's yeah, a mixed story. I think that's exactly right. I think that's very good analysis because some of the Republican governors most associated with being pro-life, signing restrictions, and supporting abortion restrictions, a lot of them that are popular in their states, they won easily, whether it was you know in the Midwest, in the Great Plains, where you had Kim Reynolds uh, in, in Iowa, for example, or Christy Nome in South Dakota. Two examples that you cited were in Texas and Georgia, where Governors Abbott and Kemp both signed heartbeat laws at six weeks. In Ohio, that was another heartbeat state. Mike DeWine won easily. In Florida, Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week ban in most circumstances. Uh, He won, of course, this massive, thumping, historic victory, almost 20 points. Uh, Even in Oklahoma, where the Democrats felt like maybe they had a chance to take out Governor Stitt, who signed a near-total ban on abortion in that state, and the media was really hyping up the fact that Stitt could be in trouble. He won easily by double digits. So I think the declarative statement that abortion clearly helped the Democrats and hurt the Republicans, it's more complicated than that for the reasons that you just mentioned. But I agree that it played some role in some of these other races, especially at the federal level. You also ask a question, one of these questions in your column was, and this is something that We focused on a fair amount here. During Republican primaries, Democrats spent tens of millions of dollars to get, quote unquote, poison pill MAGA candidates nominated. How would those MAGA candidates do? And we saw this in governor's races, Senate races, House races where Democrats were saying, all right, these people are threats to democracy. They deny the election. But let's boost them in the primary with lots of money because we want to run against them. I thought it was a very reckless and cynical strategy. And, Mark, I, I think it's unavoidable to come to the conclusion, unfortunately, at least this time, it worked for them. It did. I mean, they spent over $40 million boosting these candidates. Joe Biden, on with one side of his mouth, gave speeches urging Republicans to reject the extremists, to, to nominate moderates and centrists and mainstream Republicans. And at the same time, was spending tens of his party was spending tens of millions of dollars to nominate these guys because they'd be easier to beat, and they were. Uh, every single one of the Democrat-funded MAGA candidates uh, lost. Uh, so it was a it was hypocritical, it was cynical, uh, but it was highly effective. Republicans also left some seats on the table because, famously, in 2020, Republicans did a lot better than expected. Even though they lost the presidency, they did a lot better than expected. In House races where they swept all the toss ups, they did not lose a single seat that they controlled in the entire cycle of 2020. They gained double digit seats and that gave them this floor, this elevated floor to make it a pretty easy lift to win the House back. Now, they barely were able to achieve that lift for various reasons, but they had some Republican held seats that flipped to the Democrats. Of course, there were more flips in the other direction. So you'll have a Republican Speaker of the House, but points left on the board for sure in places like Washington State, in Alaska, in New Mexico, Ohio. Maybe talk about what happened there a little bit. Uh, and just there were three Republican incumbents who lost um, it's, it's the uh, seat. 
and then uh, in the house with there were two uh, two uh, uh, Jamie Herr Butler and uh, and Peter Mayer uh, who were challenge Republicans who voted to impeach Trump were challenged by MAGA candidates and uh, and then uh, the MAGA candidates who beat them in the primary uh, lost to Democrats and flipped those seats over to Democrats. So you know we've got a very narrow uh, majority. Uh, it could have been, you know, if it, there was a period of time where we thought it might be one or two day, one or two votes. Uh, it's now looking closer to eight, but that could have cost us. Uh, that could have cost conservatives the, uh, the the control of the Senate. I mean, the control of the House. And certainly, uh, it it uh, I think having some of these extreme candidates cost us control of the Senate uh, because there were, you know, we we had to defend uh, territory in four in four states. Uh, and in several of those states, uh, Republicans lost Senate seats that they had held before. So uh, it was uh, overall, uh, you know, nominated. I think the lesson of this election is that voters don't like uh, the, 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 vote, the voters are sending us a message that they want. They want conservatives, but they want people who are not focused on the past, but are focused on the future and people who are less flamethrower and more problem solvers. Uh, those are the kind of candidates that won. Uh, and especially in these governorships like Kemp, like uh, like DeWine, uh, like DeSantis. Uh, and, uh, and I think if we don't learn that lesson, we're not going to do very well in the next uh, in two years from now. You know, you can, I think, make that point pretty persuasively about a number of these candidates where, you know, very winnable seats were sort of just left on the cutting room floor or however, whatever at you know, analogy or metaphor you want to use, there were blown opportunities. New Hampshire, Arizona, a very bitter pill to swallow in Pennsylvania, given who won that race. The one that I really struggle with is Nevada, because Adam Laxalt was a good, sensible, normal Republican nominee who had both the backing of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. He was sort of a consensus type of candidate. He was leading in the polls for you know many weeks, and he lost barely. He barely, barely lost. But to this total zero of a senator who's just a rubber stamp for Biden and the Democrats, I, like I can understand why some of these other Republican candidates failed to break through and and didn't really ultimately prevail. Even though I think some of those races were totally winnable. Nevada really sticks in my craw, Mark, because it doesn't really follow the same pattern. And yet the national pattern continued in that state with that candidate in that race. Yeah. So a couple things on that. Number one, in Arizona and uh, and uh, what was the other state you mentioned, Arizona Maybe and uh, New Hampshire? Yeah, New Hampshire. So if our nominees had been uh, had been Governor Ducey and Governor Sununu for the Senate, we would have won those seats handily, and we and Republicans would be in control of the Senate right now. Yeah. Uh, both of them didn't run because they didn't want to take on Trump, and because Trump did make clear that he didn't want them to be the nominee. Um, and so, we those those seats were just giveaways uh, to the other side. Uh, and then, you know, when it comes to to Nevada, uh, although, and yeah, I'd also point yeah. out, Mark, just quickly, just to add one more, Pennsylvania, Doctor Oz obviously couldn't do it, lost by a couple points to someone who I just think is astoundingly unfit to be a senator in every way, but the people of Pennsylvania disagree. You'll have John Fetterman as a senator. But I think if you look at what happened across the country, the types of candidates who did well, if Pat Toomey, the incumbent, had not decided to step away, if he had run again, 
I think Pat Toomey absolutely wins re-election. And another frustrating, uh, you know, point left on the board. If Doug Mastriano was not the the Republican governor nominee, so if you look at some of these other races where yeah. uh, there were where there were weak candidates, like for example in uh, in Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, in Ohio, where uh, you know the uh, Governor DeWine won by I think something like 26 points, uh, JD Vance won by by six. Uh, it was a strong governor's race, governor that, that that pulled him over the top. Uh, you had the same thing in Florida with with DeSantis and Rubio. You had the same thing in in other states. Uh, in Kemp, you know, the only reason we're in a runoff is because Kemp pulled uh, Walker up above the, uh, that. In Mastri- in Pennsylvania, you had the opposite, where Mastriano was a was a was an anchor around Dr. Oz's neck. Uh, so, you know, I, I I think we've just got boy, you know, I thought we learned after 2020 when we nominated the witch in in Delaware. Uh, <laughs> that, that, uh, oh, and, and uh, was that, that 2012, right? Uh, yeah, 20, yeah, 2012. 20, uh, no, it's 2010 midterm. Yeah, there were there were some clunkers that cycle, and Sharon Angle in Nevada, and then. But that brings me back to Nevada again. All of these lessons I agree with. Nevada is the one where none of the rules seem to apply. It was not a fringe candidate. He did a good, serviceable, solid. You know, I, I would say pretty disciplined job on the campaign trail. He was not weighed down by the gubernatorial nominee who actually won for the Republicans in that state narrowly, whereas Laxalt narrowly lost. I get that Nevada is still a pretty blue state, but in this type of environment, the Laxalt loss, I think, is one that particularly stings. So two two reasons uh, I, could, I might posit as to why that happened. Uh, one of them is the national mood matters. And so, you know, you had uh, in right across, you know, across the border in Arizona, you had Blake Masters and, and uh, uh, you know, running and and Carrie Lake, who were seen as uh, as extreme. And there's media markets slipping by, spanning both of those states. Um, and you just had this message, message of, you know, of, uh, of uh, extreme Trump nominees that probably and, you know, he was endorsed, as you say, by both. Um, and then the other thing is. Mitch McConnell. So the reason why we're we don't even have more desperate losses in the Senate is because of Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell spent two hundred and forty-two million dollars bailing out these Trump nominees. He had to spend thirty-two million dollars in Ohio to save JD Vance uh, because JD Vance was about was going to lose that race, uh, and and that is that is an opportunity cost. That is money that could have been spent in 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 Nevada, for example. So he did. He also spent twenty-five million dollars in Nevada. Uh, but I suspect he probably would have poured more money into that race if he had another $32 million, because that was probably one of the most winnable races for Republicans if he didn't have to save J.D. Vance. So Trump getting a, a, a weak nominee that had to be dragged over the finish line in a state like Ohio uh, cost us in, in, in Nevada. Mark Thiessen, our guest, Washington Post columnist, Fox News contributor, former presidential speechwriter. And we've got to leave it there for now, Mark, because we're up on a break, but a lot to puzzle over, some lessons perhaps to marinate in and talk about and hopefully learn ahead of 2024 with a bunch of winnable races ahead, including, I would say, the presidency. We'll be talking about that for years to come, even though that kind of sounds a little bit exhausting. It's, It's already arriving, Mark, and we'll talk about it very soon. Thanks for joining us. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Go Devils. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. We're talking about Twitter and some of its critics. At the opening of today's show, we will 
talk much more about this issue specifically and more broadly with Molly Hemingway coming up later in the show. Earlier today, a new press release put out by Twitter that was amplified on the platform by Elon Musk with the headline Twitter 2.0, our continued commitment to the public conversation. It begins this way. Twitter's mission is to promote and protect the public conversation to be the town square of the Internet. We have always understood that to reach this goal, we must give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly and without barriers. We've always understood that our business and revenue are interconnected with our mission. They rely on each other. Brand safety is only possible when human safety is a top priority. All of this remains true today. The statement says that they're going to do more experimentation on best practices moving forward. They write, as we carry out this work, we want to assure you of a few things, saying, first, none of our policy have changed. At least so far, the policies haven't changed. Freedom of speech, not freedom of reach, is something that they're looking at in terms of deamplification of content that violates the rules. The trust and safety team continues its diligent work. They are still in place. When urgent events manifest on the platform, they will use their tools to moderate that content. They are constantly working to improve their policies and processes. And as they embark on this journey, they say, we will make mistakes, we will learn, and we will also get things right. And they remain committed to providing a safe, inclusive, entertaining, and informative experience for everyone. So interesting stuff put out by Twitter today. Elon Musk putting his stamp on this as well. We'll talk about all of it with Molly Hemingway later on. Another hour coming up next. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Still to come later in the program, Molly Hemingway will be here. A lot still to get to. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's our online home, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free of charge on demand every day. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's on Twitter and also Instagram, if you'd like. Fox News alert as we get going here. Big day on Wall Street. The Dow soaring 737 points, closing out at 34,589. couple factors there. GDP estimate revised up for last quarter just a little bit, so... Uh, stronger growth last quarter. That's encouraging to the markets. And also this rail strike looks like it's going to be averted. The House in a bipartisan vote moving a bill and passing a bill to avert that what would be crippling strike uh, on America's railways. So those two pieces of information boosting the markets today. Joining us now is Mary Anastasia O'Grady. She writes the Americas column every week on politics, economics, and business in Latin America and Canada, appearing each Monday in the Wall Street Journal. She's a member of that newspaper's editorial board as well. I referenced referenced rather her most recent column when I was on special report earlier in the week, headline, Biden's Dirty Oil Deal with Venezuela. Let's get into it with Mary O'Grady. It's great to have you back. Thanks for, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Guy. Great to be here. Thank you. So we actually read from part of your column 
about this oil deal with Venezuela and the lack of an oil deal, or at least enthusiasm for an oil deal with a U.S. ally in South America, sort of a compare and contrast scenario. We did that on Monday. But if you can just lay out for us, when your headline describes this dirty deal with the Venezuelans, what does that entail? Well, you know, uh, Venezuela obviously is a uh, 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 an adversary of the United States, a close ally with Iran, um, closely allied with Russia. And um, over the last um, year, while Russia was, um, you know, invading Ukraine and oil was uh, becoming more scarce in the world, uh, the Biden administration began flirting with Venezuela. And let's remember that Donald Trump had put sanctions on Venezuela to try to squeeze the regime so that uh, they would be forced to um, basically they would not so much that they would surrender, but that they would be so weakened that there would be an opportunity for a return to democracy in that country, which is you know now a full-fledged dictatorship. And um, the Biden administration began flirting with Venezuela. And there were lots of suggestions in the press and uh, that, you know, they were looking for oil from Venezuela. And then in um, I think it was June, May or June, uh, Juan Gonzalez, who is the uh, senior director for Western Hemisphere at the National Security Council, went to Caracas. And, um, you know, initially the news was that he went there to discuss whether we could get some oil from Venezuela. But there was a big outcry about that for a bunch of reasons. Um, and so then he backtracked and said, well, no, it's really about democracy and getting the hostages out of Venezuela because uh, the Venezuelan government had taken a bunch of Americans hostage. Um, and so there was a negotiation about that. And over the next uh, six months or so, four or five months, um, basically Venezuela uh, did release uh, some of the American hostages. They still hold some Americans. Um, and uh, now all of a sudden, Thanksgiving weekend, um, the Biden administration announced that they're giving the license to Chevron to begin pumping uh, oil that they can sell in the United States again. So um, basically why they did this is not clear because they say they're going that they got Venezuela to agree to go to a negotiating table and talk about restoring democracy in that country. I mean, anybody with two brain cells to rub together knows that, you know, dictatorships don't do that. Um, and, and they can sit down and talk. Right? If, if that's the if that's what they've conceded. Oh, yeah, we will agree tentatively to potential talks. That's that's nothing. They've been talking. I mean, if you Google those words, you will find that since 2002, uh, the U.S. has been trying to cajole first Hugo Chavez and now Nicolas Maduro uh, into basically free and fair elections. And they've never been successful. So why this time they're going to be successful, particularly when. Um, you know, the U.S. has already agreed to let Chevron go back there and start pumping oil is beyond me. And so the money's now flowing. The oil's going to flow. This is an enemy of the United States, allied with even worse enemies of the United States. That's the deal that they've cut the Biden people with Venezuela. Meanwhile, the shackles are on here at home. We know that they try to deny it. They talk about all these, you know, uh, drilling permits that aren't being used. And I think a lot of that is just misdirection. They have stated that they want to shut down the fossil fuel industry in the United States and 
when Biden's feeling it, he actually admits it openly how proud he is that they're doing exactly that. But you give an example, staying in South America, of a small country many people have probably never heard of, Guyana, where there's actually quite a large energy deposit offshore. This is a U.S. ally. And you just sort of stand side by side the approach with Venezuela versus the approach with Guyana. Talk about that, because that's something I had never really heard of until I read your column. Well, it's remarkable, actually, what Guyana has under the sea offshore Guyana. And this is thanks to ExxonMobil, which began uh, looking for oil in that area. Um, Lots of people said there wasn't any oil. ExxonMobil stuck with it. Um, They made their first find, I think, in 2015, but since then they keep finding more and more. And it's now uh, estimated something like 11 billion barrels of oil equivalent. Um, And that makes them per capita the richest oil country in the world after Kuwait. They're the, the second most oil per capita in the world. Now, this is a very poor country with weak institutions. Um, But ExxonMobil has found this oil. And I should add that this oil is what they call in the industry light and sweet. And that's very different from the tar that you get in the Orinoco area of Venezuela. Um, Now, I'm not against, you know, heavy crude. Uh, Canada produces a lot of heavy crude. But uh, it has to be done, uh, you know, um, used in a, in a more careful way. And the light sweet crude that comes from Guyana is, doesn't need quite the same um, attention and is far less polluting just naturally. Um, so we should be celebrating this as a poor country that has a chance to get rich. Um, it's an ally that has a democracy. And it's producing a bunch of oil, which the world needs. So what's not to like, you know? And um, uh, what happened is that the, the there's a private sector company there that wanted to build the infrastructure that's necessary. That means enhancing the port and being able to deal with waste and, um, you know, all the, the human issues and so forth. And so they had a big project. They went to the IDB, something called IDB Invest, which is the private sector financing arm of the Inter-American Development Bank, and said, we need a loan of $70 million. Actually, we need $130 million, but we're asking you for 70 and the rest we're going to get from the private sector. And the Biden administration vetoed the loan. And their uh, rationale was that, well, we have a we have Treasury guidance, which, by the way, existed under President Obama, was then lifted during President Trump. And well, now it's, it's returned- the environmental stuff. Right. They basically said we're going to come in and veto this because of the, you know, the carbon concerns and all of that. And so they're leaving a huge opportunity on the table. And as you point out in your column, swooping right in more than happy to help are the Chinese which is yet another element of this problem. It's just madness, the policy on energy from this administration. Mary Anastasia O'Grady, columnist at The Wall Street Journal, member of the editorial board. Thank you so much for your time. We've got to step aside and we'll be right back. There is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism, or white supremacy. And anyone meeting 
with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, joining the now basically universal chorus of voices in the GOP in denouncing this dinner that happened over Thanksgiving weekend at Mar-a-Lago with former President Trump hosting not just Kanye West, who has really devolved into an outspoken anti-Semite, sadly and disturbingly, in recent months in particular, but his hangers-on, his henchmen, two very well-known bigots, one of whom is especially toxic and poisonous. And Trump was at the table with them breaking bread, and news of that dinner, of course, leaked. They leaked it themselves, I'm sure, because they wanted the publicity. They wanted to use Trump's imprimatur, knowing or unknowing, to validate themselves, enrich themselves, make them more relevant, and get a lot of attention. And at least on that last piece, they have succeeded. We talked about it a little bit on Monday. We addressed it at length yesterday with Byron York. I don't want to rehash all of it. But we're now seeing, I think, virtually every major Republican I can think of condemning what happened when they were asked about it. Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, rank and file members, former members of the Trump administration, Trump's ambassador to Israel, who's been a very strong ally of Trump's, breaking with him on this. And the reason I bring this up again, aside from just saying that people yelling and screaming over a long holiday weekend that Republicans were not like stepping away from the Thanksgiving dinner table to talk about this, and that was somehow proof of complicity. And then, of course, once the denunciation comes, it's too late or not good enough. That's the stupid game that they're always going to play. Those are not honest brokers. Right? That's sort of the tell where the goalposts always shift, where the goal is always to make Republicans look bad no matter what they do. But I think for people operating in good faith, people understanding how news cycles work, it has been – not surprising and somewhat heartening to see Republicans coming out and doing the bare minimum, which is saying this is a terrible idea and a disgrace that it happened, especially given the profile of what these people have done and said. Kanye West going down that dark path recently, this younger guy that we've talked about who really says vile things. It's his whole shtick. That's his whole somewhat public persona, unfortunately a persona that's gotten a lot of oxygen and amplification all over the place now. Like, do we need to make little garbage bigots into household names because it's a way to critique Trump? Not saying that he doesn't deserve criticism here, but it's a balance that we're trying to strike. But this this guy's talked about endorsing racial segregation, denouncing biracial couples and marriages and that sort of thing, railing against the Jews and gays. I mean, if there's something hateful to be said, women, clearly a misogynist, he's an incel, this guy checks every box. And he is now latched on like a little barnacle to Kanye West, who is adrift. And because Kanye West is famous and rich, he ends up with Trump, and then they're all there together. 
the development, the new update is, I saw this piece from NBC News, these nasty little entourage members in Kanye West's orbit orchestrated this, or at least are claiming that they orchestrated this, to make Trump look bad. So one of these sort of freak show people was boasting in the NBC News story that he arranged the dinner, quote, just to make Trump's life miserable because news of the dinner would leak and Trump would mishandle it. So this guy was confident that it would leak because, again, I'm confident he and his little posse did the leaking. And he was also confident that Trump would mishandle it and it would look bad for Trump. So when Byron York, our guest yesterday on this, said that this was a setup to hurt Trump, that Trump played right into the trap, this is further evidence for that. The other little dumpster fire of a person who was part of this echoed the sentiment. This is from the NBC News story. Quote, I hate to say it, but the chickens are coming home to roost, he said for Trump. Talking about, quote, frustration with his base and his true loyalists, which I guess he's pretending that he is, even though he's using this opportunity and this whole thing to enrich himself, gain fame and dump on Trump. So it was a setup. It has worked basically to a T for these people. And Trump or the people around him allowed this to happen. If you want to take Trump at his word that he had no idea who these people were, setting aside Kanye, which is a whole separate problem unto itself, given what Kanye has been saying recently. But if he didn't know who these other characters were, clearly there were people who ought to be serving as gatekeepers who did and did not serve as gatekeepers, maybe because they don't take their job seriously. They have horrible judgment. They felt like Trump actually would want to meet with these people. I have no idea. But for a guy who brags about surrounding himself with the best people, that has not been true for a long time. And some of the best people that he actually did have in his administration have long since sprinted away from whatever this thing has become. And now he's a candidate again for president. Like you would think that his campaign, as it were, might want to protect him better than this, but maybe they're not capable of it. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they don't see a problem with this, or maybe they do. Apparently, there's a big fight happening internally. Trump is doubling down and getting angry and lashing out at everyone. Just the same old drama. The other thing that I'll point out, last point on this, they always say Trump is a counterpuncher, right? If you come after him, then he's going to come after you and he's going to bury you. He won't fire the first rhetorical shot, but you better be ready if you come after him. That's sort of the boasting that they always do. Tremendous counterpuncher. Except he preemptively punched, not counterpunched, at Ron DeSantis in that crazy rant, a couple of them. He preemptively punched at Glenn Youngkin. Although at least that one you could maybe claim that it was a counterpunch if you squint a little bit. But the DeSantis thing was an opening salvo. Yet we have not seen one word from Trump denouncing these people. These one or two guys specifically. And even after they are out here gleefully humiliating him and milking every drop out of this publicity that they can get while making him look and sound like a fool, having set him up and exploited it successfully, we have not seen anything from him. If there's ever a moment to counterpunch really hard, this might be it.
But so far, we haven't heard that from Trump. And I think that's another question that needs to be asked. Why not? From Mr. Counterpuncher. Judgment, calculation, ethics, fitness. All the issues are back. You know my views on them. I'll leave it at that. We'll break. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through the program, here on this Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, every day for the free podcast and more. All right, so for this next topic, I've been seeing a fair amount about it on social media. My friends are talking about it. I've gotten text messages about it. It's sort of in a realm that I'm not terribly familiar with. But I'll probably bring in producer Christine here to help walk us through some of it. It is the Balenciaga scandal involving, I guess, this ad campaign for this high-end designer that involves pretty obviously sexualized images of very young children, including, I think, the most egregious example that people are talking about is this young child holding what can only be described as a BDSM teddy bear with, like, black eyes and sort of sexualized leather gear, that kind of look. And there's a young kid holding this bear. And I know part of the context also is, like, wine bottles, like a night of debauchery has taken place. And now there are kids entered into that context and the photos taken for this ad campaign. And... I think almost immediately there's an ick factor as soon as you see it. I was unable to form an immediate opinion because I saw some of the images on TV where the offensive parts were actually blurred out. I guess some of the networks had decided that they couldn't even show it on TV. So I found it easily, of course, online. And I was like, okay, who said yes to this? Who decided this was a good idea? Who approved this at every level? along the way toward publication. Facing a backlash, Balenciaga, which is a Spanish brand owned by a French company, is my understanding, with a huge presence in the United States, they are now sort of trying to distance themselves from their own campaign and threatening to sue the advertising agency, even though a lot of ad professionals are saying there's no way that the company did not have multiple people with their fingerprints all over this Again, every step of the way. And now that there's a backlash that is, I think, rightfully building, they're trying to pretend like, oh, this was something done to them rather than something done by them. And we've learned that the kids involved were actually children of Balenciaga employees, which in some ways I think makes it even creepier. Parents were like, okay with this, I guess. And so one of the subplots to this controversy is the celebrity class, people who have done endorsement deals or are associated with the brand, a lot of them are silent, saying nothing. Others are speaking out somewhat but sort of hedging, and there's a lot of criticism coming in. There are some people out there, prominent folks, who are unequivocally denouncing Balenciaga, even cutting ties with them. And, of course, all of this comes in the broader context of a lot of concern, especially among conservatives, about the sexualization of children generally 
and some of the culture war fights that are playing out in American politics right now, which, because we are in such a tribal moment where everything seems to be polarized, if conservatives are offended by something, there are some on the left who reflexively feel like they have to defend it or vice versa. So if the conservatives are mad about it, you have to kind of sort of be for it or at least not openly against it. And there's this very, I think, problematic and disturbing conflation on the left and right fringes between LGBT rights and being pro-LGBT and the sexualization of children, where some people out there on the very socially conservative right just sort of casually conflate these things. Like if you're pro-LGBT rights, then you are a groomer or you're in favor of the sexualization of children and you're a danger to children. And I think that that is deeply wrong and offensive as a gay man. It's not true. But then there are some people on the left who sort of accept the whole premise and go along with it by saying, well, if you are speaking out loudly against Balenciaga, really what this is about is attacking the LGBT community, which it, of course, is not. I don't think there's anything related to LGBT in these ads. It's just a very weird thing that people are associating them together at the polls, at the extremes on both sides of this thing. And maybe, just maybe, a lot of the conservatives who are objecting to the sexualization of children, who say that force-feeding kids in public schools, things like gender and sexuality identity education at K through three levels, which a lot of people in the Democratic Party and the liberal media and sort of the cultural left have been defending now for months because you know Ron DeSantis passed a law, so they have to be mad about that. They're on the wrong side of public opinion on that. But they're claiming that these are just conspiratorial, crazy, weird right-wingers trying to demonize the LGBT community by addressing a problem that doesn't really exist, that they've created just to smear other people. But we've seen examples, actual examples of some of this gender and sexual identity stuff being taught or indoctrinated in public schools to very young kids in Florida and other places. It's not like people came up with this out of nowhere. To some extent, it has been happening, which is why people are objecting to it and moving to say, we're not okay with it. Let's figure out a way to make sure that the law reflects that. And maybe, again, just maybe, some of those conservatives have a point that there are elements in our society that are trying to diminish or erode the rightful taboo on the sexualization of children. And I'm not willing to scapegoat any group or any identity that's at fault for this completely. But if you have a bunch of people at a very high-end elite brand, Balenciaga, who decide that putting a very young child, three, four maybe, I'm not great at guesstimating kids' ages, but this is a very young kid. With this sort of leather strap BDSM stuffed animal. That there were people who felt like that was appropriate on any level and approved it at each level suggests that maybe there is something of a problem on this front that needs to be talked about and fought back against in our society. Sign me up for LGBT rights. 
Sign me up in the fight against sexualizing children. These are not at all mutually exclusive. So as I mentioned, I've basically exhausted all of my knowledge on this subject at this point. Producer Christine has been following it more closely as a mother. She also is interested in the celebrity angle here of who is speaking up, who isn't. So, Christine, first of all, do you think I'm about right about the age of that one child in particular? Yeah, I think you are spot on. I would say maybe like four. But um, the one thing I wanted to say is this isn't just one campaign. The 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 child holding the bondage bear and then the other photo shoot, those were two separate campaigns. So first they put out the Balenciaga gift shop, which has um, the bears, you know, being held by children. Then the week later, they go and put out the other one. So it it makes no sense. They knew they were starting to get backlash already. Maybe just like halt the whole campaign, you know, before the other one keeps coming out. And well, the idea that they're victims here, oh, that they're victims of their own campaign, I don't think anyone believes that, right? It's obvious, desperate damage control. Right. So the the campaign that that with the um, court documents, the Supreme Court documents on child, you know, pornography, Balenciaga is now suing North Six, I believe the company is called, and they're the ones that said, "Wait a second, we just got those court papers from a prop." Set We didn't know. So they're saying we didn't know. They're blaming the prop set. Balenciaga is saying we didn't know and blaming North Six. The first Look, camp- a lot, a lot of adults had yes. to give this the thumbs up. Yes, that's along my point. The way. And then the other campaign was done by an Italian you know, photographer. And he's saying, oh, my God, my career is ruined now over this. And he said, I had no say in what I was photographing. You know, they did everything. Come on. I just lit it the room and took the pictures. Come on. No, look, at some point you have to take ownership of what you're doing. Yes. And what you are providing your goods and services toward. Now, let's talk about the celebrities because I know okay. Kim Kardashian is right in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. She put out a pretty lengthy denunciation of Balenciaga. I guess she has some professional relationship with them, but she is stopping short of cutting ties with them because I guess she probably still wants their money. So I'm not sure if I should be grateful that at least she said something negative about this, unlike some others. I know Nicole Kidman's under fire for that. But if she's going to say, oh, I'm upset about this, they need to make it right, without actually maybe putting something on the line in terms of her bottom line, I know a lot of people are arguing that's sort of a hollow gesture. I just, I mean, what is Kim's bottom line then? Because you know I'm a huge Kardashian fan. You, I, you've you laughed at me over the years of always watching the Kardashians. I can't watch them anymore. And I know you and I, I know you specifically despise cancel culture. You're not for that. And I, I to the most part, I agree, but not with this. this. These are our children. I mean, you're telling me all these adults sat around and didn't realize what this would mean, what this would look like, what this would stand for from their company. I don't I don't buy it. And the celebrities, you're saying people are speaking out. Not really. I mean, like you said, Kim, sure, she said she's going to be monitoring the situation and hopefully they've learned from their mistakes. But guess what? This is already the mistake. The mistake has been done. She should separate herself. The girl's got money. She doesn't need their money. If she was smart, she would separate themselves. And what I find hysterical is weeks before they separated, Balenciaga separated themselves from Kanye West. 
because they didn't like what he was going around saying. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, what, Bethany Frankel? Yeah. So She's she, been pretty outspoken. I saw there was an NFL player who put out a statement. There are some people standing up on this. I just think really the issue that keeps nagging at me is, and I sort of referenced this a moment ago, we have so much drama around identity politics and sexual education and like how those things should interact when it comes to schools and education. It's been a firestorm. It's been a hot-button issue now for a number of years in this country. We've had big national debates over it. The nonsense over don't say gay, which I think was a misnomer in Florida, and I've given my position on that multiple times here on the show. I agree with the fundamental basis of that law, which is you don't need to be teaching and should not be teaching sexual and gender identity to six-year-olds in school. That is not a good idea. Just teach them the basics. Let them be innocent children. Let parents make these decisions in their households when to introduce these difficult, sticky discussions at very young ages. At some point, it becomes more age appropriate. If you're K through three, I think it's perfectly fine to say that's not what we're doing in our public schools in this state or in this country. But within that broader conversation, there are conservatives who seem to think that if you hold certain viewpoints on sexual morality or homosexuality or gender identity, you are automatically sort of soft, quote unquote, on the issue of sexualizing children, which I think is grotesquely unfair. And there can be and should be and is a bright line there, in my opinion. Then on the other hand, you have people primarily on the left who seem to be like, well, if you're one of these right wingers, you're a sexual Puritan and you're just paranoid about all of this stuff and there's there's nothing to it and there's no sexualization of children and there is no grooming happening at all out there and it's all just a big political culture war for the right. And I think what we are seeing is that even if some of the threat is sometimes exaggerated or misappropriated or pinned on people unfairly, the concern on some level is valid because we are seeing some of the lesson plans for young kids. And we're seeing something like this from a huge international brand where a bunch of adults looked at this picture in particular and said, yeah, that's fine. And for that culture to exist in an elite high-end institution, I mean, to me, that is at least one data point that we should be concerned and vigilant when it comes to the sexualization of children because it's disgusting. And I think as soon as you look at it, it should be immediately obvious that it's disgusting. I just want to say one thing on on going back to what you were talking about, what children are learning in schools. You were so, so right. I know you and I don't often agree on things, but Children are sponges. My daughter is nine and comes home and she is hanging on every word these teachers say to her, what they teach her, you know, what they're thinking. It's all she knows every day. And it just I can't imagine my child going to school, learning things that I want as a parent to be able to talk to her about her getting it from them. It blows my mind and it has to stop. Yep. I think what you're saying is giving voice to a lot of the concerns that parents in their bones believe and understand is a thing. It's something they need to be worried about or at least aware of. And this episode of Balenciaga has turned into a five alarm PR fire for them, deservedly so 
it should be a huge problem for them. And the fact that a lot of people didn't realize it was a problem until the backlash materialized, I think underscores another component of the broader societal problem and cultural problem. So I wanted to address it. Christine, thanks for some of your input since you followed it more closely than I have. And as there are developments, we will bring them to you on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Quick note out of New Hampshire, where the Republicans had a mixed night a few weeks ago. Governor Chris Sununu, who's been on this show multiple times, the Republican chief executive, won easily, double digits, running away. The Republican Senate nominee, who is one of these fringe-type people who said a lot of crazy stuff, lost handily. And the Democrats swept the two House races in that state. At the state level in New Hampshire, the Republicans have maintained their control of the state Senate by approximately, it looks like, the same margin that they had before the midterm elections. And the House of Representatives, the lower house in Concord, is split extremely closely, one of the closest partisan splits and breakdowns in state history. One of the races came down to an exact tie, by the way, 970 votes each, and they're trying to sort through that. New Hampshire, despite being a small state, has a massive state legislature. But in one of the districts, it's very interesting There was vote counting underway. It was very, very close. There was a stack of 25 uncounted votes that had just been neglected by accident. Those 25 votes put the Republican over the top. A judge had agreed that they should be counted. The secretary of state made a good argument for why they should be counted. The Democrats were suing, saying, don't count the votes. And now, because the votes were counted correctly and the Republican won, the New Hampshire Democratic Party is casting doubt on the legitimacy of that election. Isn't that interesting? From the party of democracy, count all the votes. Democracy's on the ballot, right? These are the things that they say, but they say it with an asterisk because ultimately they are about power and nothing more. And way up on that high horse, as soon as they feel like there's some advantage in questioning election results, which they do when it suits them in Georgia, in 2000 nationwide, in Florida specifically, for example, they jump right off the high horse down into the mud. And this is another example of that, this time out of New Hampshire, from the party of democracy, self-claimed, asterisk. Wanted to mention that and bring that to your attention on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. Molly Hemingway is here when we come back. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. The Wednesday happy hour is here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. TheLongDrink.com is their website. I saw that they announced, I think it was yesterday, that they had more than 30 million Americans trying their product within the last year. Where they have massively increased their sales. They just keep growing exponentially. And this audience is part of the reason why. So we're grateful for that. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Our website at the program, family friendly, all ages, 
21 plus, 21 under, it's fine. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand, no charge. You can also follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow. That's both Twitter and Instagram. Joining us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author of two best-selling books, at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. Molly, great to have you back here. Great to be here with you. And I will have you know, and in fact we'll be discussing this a little bit further later on this hour, but the long drink has arrived, the big, big shipment at my house today for the Christmas party that I'm hosting along with Adam and the family on Saturday. You will be in attendance along with Mark. You guys are often some of the first people to RSVP, yes, and I'm always thrilled to get that notification that the Hemingways are in it's not really the event of the season without Molly Hemingway, and we can't wait to see you on Saturday. Oh, we're in, and we are so looking forward to it. And I'm glad to hear there's a large shipment of the long drink because I remember last year everyone was yeah. drinking it, and you <laughs> ran out, and there was nearly a riot. <laughs> we did run out pretty early in the evening, so we increased our ask this year, and the long drink folks very kindly said yes, so they're kind of sponsoring the party. We'll probably run out again, but just not as early on. And I remember last year the bartender pulled me aside about midway through the night. He's like, by the way, that long drink stuff is gone. What the hell is it? He's like, people were drinking it like it was the last stockpile on earth of this stuff. What is this? So that I'm like, you've asked the right person, and I launched into the whole explanation of what it was. So we have more supplies, more provisions this year, plus wine and beer as well, yes, and we will make sure that we have a special stash for you, Molly, so you Great. can enjoy you. throughout the evening. How about that? That's what, that's what I was hoping for. Okay, very good. That was the point of you mentioning that. Okay, I want to get to more serious subjects here. It's interesting to see what's happening on Capitol Hill today. The CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, has flown into D.C. to meet with Republican lawmakers who seem, I think, understandably angry about what is being alleged by Elon Musk Elon Musk, the new head honcho at Twitter, saying that Apple has been threatening to pull Twitter out of the App Store. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday on the show as well. It seems obviously political if that's what Apple is doing. It is this moment in time where the sort of virtue signaling tribal thing on the left is to be very angry about Elon Musk and Twitter. And some of these huge corporations are getting in on the act and now Tim Cook, I guess, is concerned enough about Republican blowback that he has come to D.C. to try to answer some of these questions. I think that the conversations need to be, yes, private, but also public and under oath as well. I think there need to be serious, non-grandstanding questions about this with actual answers required from people like Tim Cook and the people underneath him at Apple. How do you view this kerfuffle in its early stages? Well, there's no question that Republicans need to take extremely serious, extremely seriously how much damage big tech companies are doing to like the fabric of fabric of American society. They are controlling a lot about how we how we are able to talk to one another, whether we're able to have debates, whether we whether we believe that debates are good and important. And they're doing it in a mostly unregulated space. And I think you and I probably agree that we don't want to see a lot of regulation of market space. But yep. The the role that Apple plays is I, I read this Christopher Caldwell essay in the Claremont Review of 
books, I think the fall issue, which talked about how some of these big tech companies are actually more powerful than governments. That's undoubtedly true. They are exerting more power. They have more to say about whether we have freedom of speech or freedom of assembly in how they control uh, the marketplace of ideas. And there's such marketplace dominance. They may not technically be monopolies, but they are dominant at a level. Well, and also, Molly, just just to jump in to underscore the point, one of my concerns, and I don't know what the best solution to this is, but you're absolutely right. When you see the Democratic Party in particular farming out or kind of outsourcing their dirty work on speech suppression or censorship to private industry, to their ideological allies at these giant multinational corporations where the government can say, oh, we're not doing this. That would be unconstitutional. We're not infringing on anything. This is just a private company doing what they want to do, but under immense pressure from their side of the aisle, because let's be obvious and let's be clear, a lot of these people are just partisan Democrats as well. If you are engaging in what amounts to censorship at the behest of government, but it's being done under the auspices or under the guise of private industry, that is not something to just say, oh, well, I guess it's fine. Shrug your shoulders and move on because there's there's an insidious element of that as well. And again, I'm not advocating a specific remedy, but it's something that we have to think about, I think, very hard. Yeah. When people say let the market work, that assumes the presence of a functioning market that we just don't have right now or the presence of a market that's not heavily uh, controlled by, as you noted, the the government or the Democrat Party on the first name basis with some of these people determining, you know, what apps can be put out or what terms can be discussed on an app. But this really speaks to the importance of Republicans. They really need to up their game and get knowledgeable on the tech sphere. They get scared about it. They don't study it. They make fools of themselves when they are discussing, uh, you know, when they when they do have committees. I always think of how Ted Stevens wasn't it who talked about the series of tubes. You know, it's They don't have the knowledge necessary to interrogate some of these issues, and they need to staff up, be really focused, and understand, again, the threat. Like We're talking about people who are meddling in U.S. elections to the tune of billions upon billions of dollars. Compare how Congress handled – you know, Russia buying a cup like a hundred thousand dollars of Facebook ads with what has happened with our tech companies and how they meddle with algorithms and censorship in our elections. They need to bone up and be ready to go aggressively, you know, do oversight hearings on the federal agencies that have colluded with big tech companies to suppress political opponents the whole nine yards. So on that front, I just want to ask you a follow up because I again don't know what the perfect answer is here either, because Process on Capitol Hill is often pretty set in stone. It becomes calcified. There are traditions. There are protocols. I think that when there are important hearings on these issues, I don't know exactly how this would be achieved, but I think that there are members of the Senate and the House on the Republican side who need to check their egos at the door, even step aside and allow more sort of savvy people colleagues of theirs, members of the House and Senate, who know this stuff better to actually lead on this issue. And you don't necessarily get your five minutes of questioning where you're bellowing at some big tech leader or CEO for the cameras, which doesn't really achieve much. I think that the Republicans internally should figure out a way to have their most savvy, their most informed members leading the questioning on this stuff so that they can actually get answers and focus 
on a granular level. I don't know if that's a realistic hope on my part, but it's one that I do harbor. God, I love that idea. And I also am reminded of what happened during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings when they all like broke down because of the Christian Blasey Ford allegation. And the senators actually delegated their questions to Rachel Mitchell, who, by the way, yes. just won um, just one office in Maricopa County as district attorney. Um, and she did, you know, under very difficult circumstances because she only had five minutes at a time. She was able to interrogate a bunch of very sensitive issues through her knowledge and expertise as a sex crimes prosecutor. I yes. wonder if you couldn't have a House committee do the same thing where they take someone who really understands the issues and is willing and knows how to delegate and how to how to how to get these people to not just evade responses. Yes. I love this idea. Yeah, I think that it might be worth maybe fleshing this out. Maybe in a piece of the Federalist, I don't know, but it needs to be looked at very carefully because having members who don't really know much, who might be older or even younger, but you know don't really understand, and I would put myself in this category as well, the intricacies of it, I would not be the best person to hold Tim Cook's feet to the fire just because I'm a millennial. It takes expertise, and I think having someone or a group of people who demonstrate that expertise, who have a right-leaning worldview, and who can really interrogate the claims and sort of anticipate some of the pat answers that they always give and then come back with something very specific, I think that would be a much more productive use of committee time to actually find things out and engage in accountability than just the usual cattle call where everyone gets their time and they raise their voice and they try to create these gotchas that are often half-witted or half-baked. I mean, I think this is something, if if they're serious about this, that they should actually do. If they're more serious about getting their face time, then that's another story, Molly. Yeah. I I mean, these issues are way too important to just leave it to the grandstanding. But, you know, it's not just some politicians, frankly. It's all politicians. Yep. Some are better yep. at it than others. And maybe we could incentivize it some way by giving them one grandstanding hearing, you know, at the end of the at the end of the um, actual hearings where testimony is gathered. But uh, if they actually want to save the country, if they actually want to get anything done, if they actually want to get answers to some of these questions, uh, it's way too important to leave to one of these typical, awful uh, show show hearings. One Republican leaning into the battle is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. I want to play some sound from him, plus some interesting comments from the newly reinstalled CEO of Disney, which is also related to this broader subject. We'll get to that with Molly Hemingway right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Molly Hemingway is with us on The Guy Benson Show as we continue our conversation. I played some sound yesterday on the show of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, who is addressing this head on. He suggested that congressional intervention or oversight is appropriate if Apple were to move forward with these alleged threats, that they were going to try to lock Twitter out of the App Store, for example, unless Twitter agreed to some undisclosed demands about censorship or what have you. And DeSantis also made this point, sort of a juxtaposition of some of the behaviors of Apple when it comes to their performance and their products abroad versus their political posturing at home. Cut 21. This is part of what DeSantis said. So if Apple responds to that uh, by nuking them from from the App Store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake. 
and it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from, from the United States Congress. And so uh, don't be a vassal of the CCP on one hand and then use your corporate power in the United States on the other to suffocate Americans and try to suppress their right to express themselves. And so I'm glad, I'm glad things are changing at Twitter. And I know there's a lot of work to do with big tech generally, but, um, uh, but this is big progress, and we're really happy that that is now happening. So he's speaking out on this. I know that you've been making the point on social media that Republicans across the board should be doing the same. I mean, it's a pretty obvious point to make there that DeSantis did. He did it rather well, in my view. And this actually calls back, Molly, to another controversy with a big fight with a major corporation that he took on in Florida. That was the Disney brouhaha. And you might recall, Molly, I was uncomfortable with that on some level. It made me feel good that someone was finally fighting back against woke stuff. I also didn't love this idea that you had any politician or government entity basically engaged in, I guess you could call it a response would be the nicer way of putting it. Retaliation would be the more cynical way of putting it against a company for wading into the political realm. But that's exactly what Florida did. DeSantis did it unapologetically and ended up kind of punishing Disney for Disney's political machinations. And some of those machinations, I would argue, were dishonest. The reason I mention it is because they have now replaced their CEO at Disney, brought back the old CEO, Bob Iger, who's not exactly a conservative, but he did one of these town hall type meetings where he was asked a bunch of questions, and Chris Rufo was tweeting some of the video of what Bob Iger was saying. He effectively said that he was sorry to see that Disney got dragged into a battle with DeSantis. He expressed regret that that whole episode happened, which seems to me like something of a climb down. And then in response to that particular legislative fight, so-called Don't Say Gay, where Disney took the side of activists, and I think that they really mischaracterized what was happening and put their thumb on the scale— Iger said that moving forward, Disney would still promote inclusion, but said that there's a delicate balance that's required, and Disney has to listen to its audience and have respect for the people that it's serving. And Rufo says to his ears, this is something of a retreat from Disney. I just wonder what you think of that, because we're now seeing months later some fallout at Disney that is at least partially related to the fight that DeSantis was willing to have, even though even some conservatives and fans of his like me weren't exactly sure that was the appropriate role of government. I mean, if you want to look at results, it's hard to at least completely dismiss this, in my view. Yeah, I mean, he did say it was retaliation, that they had injected themselves, like they were getting all these favors from the people of Florida. And then when the people of Florida made a decision that they didn't like, they went to war against the people of Florida. And so DeSantis absolutely did admit that he was retaliating against them. Uh, And whatever you think about that, there's no question that this was effective at getting Disney to back off. Almost immediately, you started seeing the Wall Street Journal reporting that other CEOs were worried about weighing into hot-button political issues in a way that would give them the Disney treatment. You saw Disney facing some financial consequences. And even though this was very mealy-mouthed, what the returning CEO said, There's no question that he was saying we cannot afford to get this political. I mean, he was improper when he said we got dragged into this. Well, they chose to weigh into this. They never needed to weigh into this. They were the ones that they dragged themselves. Yeah, Yeah, they dragged themselves into it. 
but he seemed to be saying, I mean, he said he wants to turn down the temperature. And I think that's what most people want from their corporations. They understand that they might all be staffed by crazy woke lefties. They don't want it to affect their actual consumption of the product or to feel like their, uh, you know, their political process is under attack. So I think this was a much bigger moment than people realized, not just in terms of Disney, but mostly, I think, in terms of how other corporations realize they cannot just let their wokest employees control their political discourse. Yeah, like a small sliver of very loud people inside the building, outside the building, seem to be increasingly calling the shots over there. And at some point, not to be too coarse about it, Governor DeSantis had an F around or find out moment. And I guess Disney found out. And now that they are seeing what they found out, the new replacement back again CEO is saying, let's maybe not rush headlong into something like that again anytime soon, which is at least one instructive data point in this series of battles that continue to play out. And that's why we wanted to have Molly Hemingway on the show today to weigh in on this stuff to help us analyze it, because it's tricky. And we always enjoy chatting with Molly, editor-in-chief at The Federalist. Check out both of her books, Justice on Trial and Rigged. She's a Fox News contributor, of course, and most importantly, a regular attendee of the Benson Wise Christmas Party. Molly, great to talk to you and see you in just a few days. Great to talk to you and see you soon. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. Earlier on the program today, we welcomed back Mark Thiessen, former presidential speechwriter, Washington Post columnist, Fox News contributor, looking back at the midterm elections and some of those lessons moving forward. Here's a snippet of my conversation with Mark Thiessen. Your Washington Post headline in your column is, The voters have spoken. Here's how they answered my top 10 election questions, which I think is a very interesting way to sort of frame this thing. There were a number of things that you were wondering about leading into the election. Now we have the verdict from the American people. And I'm not sure if we have time to get into all 10 of them, but why don't we highlight a couple of them? What do you think were some of the most important questions that you had ahead of time? And what are the answers now? So one of the most important questions was, uh, would Republicans pay a price for the Dobbs decision uh, uh, at the polls? And the answer is mixed. Uh, There were, uh, I believe, six governors. Uh, who are on the ballot, Republican governors, who signed abortion restrictions that took effect after the Dobbs decision. And every single one of them was reelected, but most of them by very large margins. Uh, So the the Republicans who actually implemented restrictions on abortions in the way of Dobbs didn't pay a price. However, I think one of the things that you and I saw the Fox News voter analysis on election night, um, it showed that surprisingly— uh, abortion was considered was ranked the second most important issue in the country, way behind the economy. But it was 10 percent. The economy was 43 percent. Abortion was 10 percent. Crime was 8 uh, percent. Immigration was 9 percent. Very close to those. But it was there. And I think in a number of key race in tight races, I don't think abortion would have been enough to win an election for somebody. But if you were in a tight race, and particularly with some of these extreme candidates where there were races that were much closer than they should have been, um, you know, I think it might have made a difference and won and won the Democrats some seats and helped them keep the keep the Senate. So it's, it's yeah, a mixed and, story. 
I think that's exactly right. I think that's very good analysis because some of the Republican governors most associated with being pro-life, signing restrictions and supporting abortion restrictions, a lot of them that are popular in their states, they won easily, whether it was, you know, in the Midwest and the Great Plains where you had Kim Reynolds uh, in, in Iowa, for example, or Christy Nome in South Dakota. Two examples that you cited were in Texas and Georgia, where Governors Abbott and Kemp both signed heartbeat laws at six weeks. In Ohio, that was another heartbeat state. Mike DeWine won easily. In Florida, Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week ban in most circumstances. Uh, He won, of course, this massive, thumping, historic victory, almost 20 points. Uh, Even in Oklahoma, where the Democrats felt like maybe they had a chance to take out Governor Stitt, who signed a near-total ban on abortion in that state, and the media was really hyping up the fact that Stitt could be in trouble. He won easily by double digits. So I think the declarative statement that abortion clearly helped the Democrats and hurt the Republicans, it's more complicated than that for the reasons that you just mentioned. But I agree that it played some role in some of these other races, especially at the federal level. You also ask a question, one of these questions in your column was, and this is something that We focused on a fair amount here. During Republican primaries, Democrats spent tens of millions of dollars to get, quote unquote, poison pill MAGA candidates nominated. How would those MAGA candidates do? And we saw this in governor's races, Senate races, House races where Democrats were saying, all right, these people are threats to democracy. They deny the election, but let's boost them in the primary with lots of money because we want to run against them. I thought it was a very reckless and cynical strategy. And, Mark, I I think it's unavoidable to come to the conclusion, unfortunately, at least this time, it worked for them. It did. I mean, they spent over $40 uh, million boosting these candidates. Joe Biden, with one side of his mouth, gave speeches urging Republicans to reject the extremists, to to nominate moderates and centrists and mainstream Republicans. And at the same time, was spending tens of his party was spending tens of millions of dollars to nominate these guys because they'd be easier to beat, and they were. Uh, every single one of the Democrat-funded MAGA candidates uh, lost. Uh, so it was a it was hypocritical, it was cynical, uh, but it was highly effective. Republicans also left some seats on the table because, famously, in 2020, Republicans did a lot better than expected. Even though they lost the presidency, they did a lot better than expected. In House races where they swept all the toss ups, they did not lose a single seat that they controlled in the entire cycle of 2020. They gained double digit seats and that gave them this floor, this elevated floor to make it a pretty easy lift to win the House back. Now, they barely were able to achieve that lift for various reasons, but they had some Republican held seats that flipped to the Democrats. Of course, there were more flips in the other direction. So you'll have a Republican Speaker of the House, but points left on the board for sure in places like Washington State, in Alaska, in New Mexico, Ohio. Maybe talk about what happened there a little bit. I, I just there were three Republican incumbents who lost. Um, it's it's the uh, seat, and then uh, in the House where there were two uh, two. Uh, uh, Jamie Herr, Butler, and uh, and Peter Mayer, uh, who were chall- Republicans who imp- voted to impeach Trump, were challenged by MAGA candidates 
and uh, and then uh, the MAGA candidates who beat them in the primary uh, lost to Democrats and put those seats over to Democrats. So, you know, we've got a very narrow uh, majority. Uh, it could have been, you know, if it, there was a few period of time where we thought it might be one or two day, one or two votes. My full interview with Mark Thiessen available online, GuyBensonShow.com. That interview plus the entire show available online for free on our podcast, on demand, totally no charge to you. That's every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a Christmas party update, and producer Christine has some concerns. We'll dive into that straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free of charge on demand when the show is over every day. Thank you for listening. That's GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Send us a follow if you're interested. Some extra bonus content available there as well. Well, it's that time of year again where I see an endless parade and stream of friends and acquaintances posting graphics on their social media of their favorite music of the year, where I think it's Spotify, aggregates all of the songs that they listen to over the course of the last year, and they list the artists, and it all ranks like, oh, here's my top five artists, my top five songs. There's another version of this that I've seen where people are creating what would be their own personalized music festival, like for Wyatt, it could be YY Fest 2022, and it would feature all the big artists that they love. That's another version of this content that I'm seeing. And people, I don't know what it is, but I guess people feel compelled to share it on their social media threads and feeds. Most particularly, at least for me, it's been on Instagram stories. And I'm not saying that I don't care about my friends. I am saying that I don't really care about their favorite music. And so I just skip right past it. At this point, I don't even look. As soon as I see the background, like the color, I know exactly what the post is going to be. And I just skip to the next one. Maybe I'm wrong here. By the way, there's a very important exception to this. I have been tagged by a number of people in their Instagram stories and tweets Because among their favorite podcasts is the Guy Benson Show podcast, and we will allow that very much. That's the exception. So a bunch of hand clap emojis to that specific advertisement of your preferences, if it involves us. Extremely self-serving. I'm not pretending otherwise, but we do appreciate it whenever we see it. Now, I know for a fact that Christine does not have this because it's way too much technology involved. There's just no chance that she has this. I'm not even sure if she knows what Spotify is. She might ask, what's a Spotify? But I would imagine probably at the very top of her list would be, of course, Nickelback. Say no more. I was on a Peloton ride today, and it was 90s rock, and a song came on. And for a second, I thought it might be Nickelback. Fortunately, it was not, but it was another band that I started thinking, you know what, I bet you Christine's a fan of these guys, too. Christine, are you a Creed fan? Oh, yes. I do like Creed. I forgot about them. Thank you. Yes. i got to put it on my you're, own playlist. You're welcome. You, 
Now, do you make your playlists by like timing up songs that play on the radio on your audio cassette where you hit record and play at the same time to create a little mixtape? Is that how you do it still? It's not how I still do it, but um, I guess I used to all the time. Years all and the years way till, ago. Yeah, all the way to 2019. That's when you finally moved on to compact discs, this new technology that people have been using. I don't have that Spotify, though, what you guys are talking about. That Spotify. <laughs> so am I alone in this? Wyatt, are you annoyed by this, or do you like seeing what your friends listen to in terms of their music all year long? Yeah, very much annoyed. I, I really, really don't care what you're listening to or what you're, you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mozart at the top of the list would be completely defensible, respectable. Dan is much more into music than any of us. So if anyone were to do this enthusiastically on this team here, I think it would be Dan. So are you going to defend this, Dan? Have you posted this yourself? So at first, when it first started, I hated it. I was like, this is really annoying because you just see the same thing over and over again in your feed. It's like, all right, we all get it. You listen to Taylor Swift. Great. But then I started diving deeper into it. I really get a lot out of it because I like to see what other people listen to and I find new artists that I may not have known. Um, But I will not be posting my own because I like to go to sleep with thunderstorm and rain sounds. So my rap of the year is just my top playlist is just thunderstorms, <laughs> and I'm pretty like sure weather weather sound effects. Yes, exactly, weather sound effects. <laughs> I'm pretty sure no one cares about that, so I will not be posting mine at all. I mean, it's still better than Drake. I said it. I hear Christine in the background. Christine, are you offended by that? You a big Drake fan too? <laughs> I'm not, but I, I mean, okay. you just like went for him. My gosh. I, I, I saw a few people with Drake on their list just today. I said to shake my head. I am not a fan. What I am a fan of, and we made reference to this earlier in the hour with Molly Hemingway, who will be in attendance at the Christmas party this coming weekend, along with Christine and Bobby, Wyatt, but no longer Dan and his girlfriend, who have pulled out. They flaked on us at the last minute. So we will not have one big, happy Guy Benson show family united at last down at the house. And that's something that Dan will have to live with. But what Molly mentioned was the popularity of long drink at the party last year. And I mentioned on the air, I think it was yesterday, the day before, we got so much wine for this party over the weekend. It is, I'm, again, like almost embarrassed to say how much we have. We have not gotten the beer yet. That's the last minute thing that we're going to do. Beer and ice, day of probably. But the long drink has arrived, and I actually texted because I walked down the stairs this morning. I'd been upstairs. I came down, and I saw out front on our front porch like a little mountain of boxes. And as soon as I saw that many boxes, I said, I know exactly what this is. This is our long drink shipment for the party. And it was seven boxes of long drink product. And we're going to have an array. We'll have the blue can, the white can, and the black can. Probably most of the blue and white and then a little bit of the black can because that, that's pretty heavy-duty stuff. But it will be available while supplies last at the party on Saturday. I took a photo of this mountain of long drink boxes, and I texted it to our team. And Christine's response was that she was unimpressed and concerned that there wasn't enough. And she knew that we already had 
a gargantuan amount of wine in our pantry. In fact, she wanted me to take photos of the wine just for fun. She's like, just send me photos of all the wine. I forgot to do that. But, Christine, like you're already negging the party and suggesting that there's not going to be enough alcohol. In fact, the way that you've expressed this so eloquently on the rundown here is in quotes, where's the hooch? That is your demand here. That is your concern ahead of Saturday. Why are you so concerned? I mean, aside from the obvious. <laughs> it's, I don't know if you're too young for this, but in the 80s, there was a commercial called Where's the Beef? Just think of Cookie mm-hmm. now saying, where's the hooch? Wendy's, right? That was Wendy's. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, it was Wendy's. Where's the beef? You're asking, where's the hooch? My answer is, here's a giant seven-box pile of the hooch. I don't know. For the amount of people you're having, it just doesn't seem like it's enough. Listen, I don't want to freak you and Adam out. So if you feel you have enough, um, what should we say, alcoholic beverages, you want to class it up a little bit, that's fine. Uh, What I just spoke to Dan about is I will be prepared. Um, It's going to be called BYOC, Bring Your Own Cosmo. I'm ordering a Christmas flask as we speak, and I'll be set to go. You are bringing a flask to our party? Is Possibly, maybe not. I feel I, like a, a flask is the type of thing that you use when, and I would never do this and I would never condone this, but if you are underage and going to like a dance your freshman year of college and they're not going to be serving alcohol, you might bring a flask. You might bring a flask to a wedding where it's going to be generally a dry wedding or a cash bar if that's someone's choice. I don't think you need to bring a flask to a party that is going to be awash in booze unless you aren't satisfied with our selection, which is good wine, great long drink, and some beer. No, I I love it, and obviously – You know, I love the long drink. I worry the long drink is going to run out very early on. So I want to be prepared. And, Guy, it is the cutest flask I just found. It's like a Christmas tree with light bulbs, and it says, get lit. How very classy. How very on brand, as a matter of fact. I do have— We might need a bouncer. We might need a (laughs) bouncer. We want to keep certain, you know, riffraff, low-class folks out of the house. And we could have, like, one of those things where a vague description— of people that they want to turn away at the door, and then one photograph of someone who is clearly a no. And we would be like, she might not be wearing the exact same hot dog costume that you see in this photograph, but you can figure out who it is. She's a no. Listen, listen, it'll be classy. Don't you Don't you worry. I always class it up at the Christmas no, party. No, I am worried. Don't, no, don't you worry. And um, Dan, we are going to miss you. I had made reservations before the party for an early dinner with the gang. Uh, now it will be a, a little romantic dinner of me, YY, and Bobby. I love how you mentioned YY before your husband there in that little trio. <laughs> That's true. That's kind of disturbing as well. Uh, before we get into any more trouble, we're out of time. So let's step aside and we can, of course, revisit this tomorrow and Friday. It is Christmas party season, Christina's calling it our party, the sort of the royal hour, the royal we, even though I have yet to get the Venmo payment from her to reimburse me for any of these outputs of the party that she is supposedly co-hosting, that she's so invested in that she's bringing her own booze in a flask. Oh, God help us. 
Back here tomorrow, same time, same place for The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Jesus drank wine. Cookie drinks Cosmos. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.